Thanks, Mike. Good morning, you guys. I always love when people clap after the announcements because I don't know whether it's because you did such a good job telling people about stuff or, you know, they're happy to be here or whatever. But, Mike, I, I feel like I'd clap for you. You did a great job. Um, uh, anyways, um, good to be with you guys. Uh, so many of you know our, um, a lot of our guys are gone there at our, our men's retreat. I was speaking there on Friday night and um, really good time. There was, you know, there's a bunch of folks from Mission Viejo who are there and, um, and I, <laughs> I kind of just try to mess with the guys because they, you know, everybody thinks that, especially first time people that come to a men's retreat, they're just not sure if it's like loincloths and raw meat and, you know, like, what do we, what do we do out here? We have, to eat, we have to kill our dinner before we eat it or what do we do? So I just was like, it, <laughs> just to mess with them, I, you know, we're all sitting in this room and the room's kind of set up a little smaller than something like this. And I just go, all right, everybody, just because we're at a men's retreat. And many of you know, we do this every time we get together is why don't you guys all take your shirts off and just find a partner to, to hold on to. And um, you can let go as soon as you both start crying. And I just, you know, just try to, you know, no, I just said, no, no, we're not going to do that. But anyway, it's been really great to be up there. I was talking with our guys. We had a great time. Um, and they're, they get back tonight. But um, really excited to just see what God's doing in our community as, as a couple of our guys get away to kind of see um, how God's speaking to them in some different ways. But um, I'm, I'm really excited to be back here, too, to talk about this week's message. As we've been in our series called Christian, and, you know, we have a, a question mark at the end of the, the word Christian. And I'm sure you're supposed to say it. Like, differently than I said, you're supposed to say it like Christian? Like, you're supposed to have a little bit of an upturn in, you know, pitch of the Christian? Like, I think that's how you're supposed to say it. But we've been looking at, what does this word mean? And this is a kind of a strange word. It's not a word Jesus used. Uh, it's all a word only mentioned, we said this every week, mentioned only three times in the Bible. And it's a word that can mean a lot of different things. I mean, you could find people on both sides of any debate uh, who claim to represent the Christian perspective. Well, this is the, the Christian community says this. Well, the Christians are about the, You know, it's a really vague kind of word, and it can mean everything. But the word that Jesus used to describe people who would follow him is the word disciple. And disciples, you heard Doug, you heard last week talk about this, that a Christian sort of describes, the word Christian describes something people believe, but the word disciple describes the way people are or how they act or what they do. And we've had some great conversations throughout this whole series about what's, uh, kind of what does this actually mean, this whole notion of, of being a Christian? So um, would you do this with me? Would you pray with me? And then we'll, we'll jump into this week's message. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you, um, you are here among us. Uh, Father, I'm grateful that even just in talking with folks today, just about how you are bringing people to a greater understanding of what it means to be connected in this community and to be able to feel free to wrestle with big questions about who you are and about who we are. Father, we have questions about what it looks like to be someone who is called a Christian, and if that's even the best term for us, but Father, we, um, we pray today that you might speak to us, that you would enable us to wrestle with big questions with each other. And Father, some of us come into today um, with the sense that we're, um, we're barely measuring up, that this week has been a week of rock bottom for us in so many ways. And so, Father, I pray your love would speak to us today. For others of us, God, as we're on the other end of the spectrum where things are going great, I pray that you would challenge us, nudge us, provoke us, maybe in some way just get our attention, that we might engage seriously what it means to be someone who follows you. And so, Father, we, um, we just give you a moment that you might speak to us in the stillness and the quiet, which might be the only quiet we get in our, in our lives. So just for a few moments, we pause and invite you to speak to us, that we might hear your voice.
Father, today, would this community be marked as a community of love and of family? And it is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you want to pull out your outline, you got one in your bulletin. If you want to follow along, they're great. You can, uh, we're, we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit of the Bible. The first part of our, our message will be, we'll end up in 1 Corinthians in the second half of it. But we're going to jump around a little bit and just encourage you to do that. Follow along however you need. If you want to follow along on, you know, a phone or an iPad or whatever, great. But everything will need to be on the screen as well. Um, in the first century, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East, and which is still, still prevalent today in Eastern culture, we don't really have this in the West. If you grew up with an Eastern kind of background, Eastern culture, you'd have this. You'd have a better idea, idea than the rest of us. But you have what's called, especially in the first century, you have what's called an embedded group identity for everybody. In other words, it means that you as a person, an individual, are defined by the group to which you belong and vice versa. In other words, the group itself tells you how you ought to be. It tells you, hey, this is who you are, and this is how we believe as a group. And you represent the group. Everywhere you go, people would then say, if you're a representative of these people, this group, this place, this tribe, or whatever it is, then I know everything I need to know about the group you represent. Does that make sense? Uh, so the other way to kind of think, the way that it's sort of the, so, like social anthropologists call this a dyadic personality. Meaning, I can't, I, there is no sense of individualism apart from the group. There's no, you, that's not even a reality. Everybody is always and forever intimately connected to the group that they represent. The individual always rep- represents the group. And the things I could know about you uh, are things I would know about the group. Now, we, this is different than like a stereotype. You're like, I kind of get this is like a stereotype, right? It's not like a stereotype. I'll give you an example of a stereotype. Um, and I just want to tell you, as I give you this example of a stereotype, I'm going to mock some people in the room. Uh, and I just want you to know it's only because I'm jealous. Just, just to let you know, okay? And some of you, are, just get ready for this, and we love you guys, those of you who live in this place and in this world that I'm about to mock. Uh, this is an example just for a stereotype, okay? So here you go. Just, we're all friends here. We're family. Uh, you might be from Ladera Ranch <laughs> if you own at least one car that has seating for seven, you might be from Ladera Ranch if you've ever purchased organic dog food. <laughs> you might be from Ladera Ranch if you've ever made the mistake of having at least one birthday party at Farrell's. You might be from Ladera Ranch if uh, every one of your children is involved in a club sport and has a personal trainer for that sport. <laughs> you, <laughs> you might be from Ladera Ranch if you or your family are gluten-free, dairy-free, cornstarch-free, peanut-free, soy-free, joy-free, or oxygen-free. <laughs> uh, you might be from Ladera Ranch if uh, you spent all of your last summer and your Easter, uh, your Easter break planning this summer's summer vacation. And lastly is you might be from the Dare Ranch if at least one of your children is named Riley, Jackson, Caleb, Maddie, Madeline, or Madison. <laughs> just, that's just sort of just what I'm finding here. Now, stereotype is, here's, here's a stereotype and an embedded group identity or a dyadic personality. Stereotype is always from the outside to the inside. In other words, someone from the outside is making an evaluation about a group of people who, is, who doesn't know about them or is unfamiliar with them. But a group identity is one in which the group tells the individual, no, 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 this is who you are. We all tell each other this is who we are. And yes, there's going to be stereotypes too, but you have to always know you always represent us. You who you are, wherever you go, you're us. People look and they go. That's who those people are based on that person, always. Now, this is, this is I would say in so many ways... The complaint about Christians is that if this, even, even knowing this dyadic personality, embedded group identity stuff, 
even in a Western culture, people still say when they meet Christians, I wonder if that's representative of the person they're supposed to represent. Is this the group they really want to be known as? You can see on your outline, I put a quote from, from Steve Jobs, who is not a Christian. He says, The juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith, rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. Now, what he's saying is, it's great insight. He's actually saying, I've looked at Christianity, and the way I've observed Christianity, which I'm sure is a lot of you in the room, is I've seen the people who call themselves Christians, and they don't seem to really be representative of this person of Jesus. So something has happened between Jesus and his people who are connected and the followers. They kind of have missed something there. Now, Jesus, first century Middle East rabbi, with these fully understanding the group identity, this group embedded identity, he says this to his disciples. Check this out. It's a famous passage. He's just finished washing his disciples' feet, and he says this. A new command I give you. This is John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what Jesus is saying is, we have an identity by which we're going to be known. This group identity, this dyadic personality, in which everywhere you go, people will know that you belong to me and you belong to each other by this one thing. Not by the things that you believe or the things that you say. Those things are going to be secondary to this first thing, the way people will know that you belong to me. Because you love each other. People who follow Jesus, the the, the definer of who they are, these are people who have been transformed by, they have been made aware of, they are the dispensers of, they are fully embracing this notion of love. This is how we ought to be known. The marker of our community is love. This is what a disciple is. And this isn't like love, like, you know, weak sort of Hallmark card, you know, unicorns and rainbows kind of love. We're talking about love that sent someone to the cross kind of love. That's how we're going to be known. This kind of love. Now, you have to know this before we talk about the next thing we're going to talk about. If you don't catch this, just that little part of what we just said right there, because really what I want to talk about is coming after this, but you have to know this. The way in which we're known, the personality of us is an embedded identity with Jesus. That's what's intended for us. And we're known by our love. Everybody got that before we go to the next thing? Because today, what we're going to talk about is going to be challenging. And it, I, I promise you, well, tonight or today, after you finish this, after we finish this, you're going to have more questions than you came in with. If this this talk necessitates that wherever you go for brunch with whoever you came with, that you talk with them. You will be wrestling with questions, and there are implications we cannot talk about. They just don't have time to talk about all of them. But you have to get this first part in order to get the second part. Everybody's good, right? Okay, here we go. Um, what what sort of marked Jesus and and sort of the early followers was a scandal. The scandal was that they continually included people around them that nobody in the religious community ever wanted around them. So there's Jesus and his disciples, his followers, were were gathering people together who were unwelcome in the religious community. And all the religious community was like, are you crazy? There are people there that we don't want around us, and you want them around you? And they kept asking the disciples even, "Does does your teacher know that he's got these people following him? So even just look at this. This is Matthew 11. This is... Uh, this is verse 19, so Jesus says about himself. The Son of Man, this is the title Jesus used for himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is already known as this person who walked around with people that nobody else wanted, and people accused him because he ate with them of being a drunk. 
and being someone who was this glutton, who was just this indulgent overeater. Because he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Apostle Paul, in sort of talking about his own sort of um, his own his own leadership, his own sort of mission in the world, was that he spoke to a, a sort of slightly different tack, but the same idea about what it meant to have people around him, the way he postured himself relative to the rest of the people around him, because there was this kind of magnetic mag- magnetic notoriety that Jesus was infamous and his followers were infamous because of the way that he sort of included these people. And Paul says it this way. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, this is really interesting wording. Because the notion of being a slave is something that he chooses to make other people have lordship or authority over over him. Like, I just choose to put myself in a position of the utmost servant. And then he uses the word win. He doesn't say, I put myself in this position so that I might use fear of intimidation and threats of power and punishment that people might know Jesus. He says, I serve them, that I might win some of them. The idea of win is really interesting to me, too. Have you ever tried to win someone's heart? Like, I have, there's a couple of college kids who come to my, um, uh, come to my house about once a week, and we, we serve them dinner. We usually serve them spaghetti because they eat too much. We can't afford anything else. We, just, yeah, they just, we have this huge pot of spaghetti, and these guys come over, and we, we hang out. And, and um, they always talk about their, um, their try, their, they meeting these girls, and they're getting advice from us and trying to figure out how they should talk to these girls they meet and all this kind of stuff. And so this guy's talking about, hey, I got this girl, and I, what should I do? How should I talk to her? And we're trying to, you know, he's kind of giving, should I go up to her and do this? And we're like, no, no, don't, wanna, don't do that. Don't. No, don't, don't do that either. No, like he's kind of like, he's like, I really want to win her heart over. I mean, there's that, the kind of language of, I want this person to know that I'm, I'm so dedicated to them that they would want to be with me, not because they're intimidated, obviously they're afraid, but because they would just choose me. How do I help them to know that? And Paul says, the way we're going to do this, knowing first that Jesus' scandalous inclusive, inclusiveness of people who are on the outside. But secondly, Paul's like, I'm, I'm going to be one who takes on the position of a servant such that people's hearts are won over. Now, there is, I mean, that's discipleship, and that's dangerous. People will accuse you of things if you live like that. People will not understand you. And there is a giant, there's a, there's a danger here in living like that, but there's also this giant obstacle. And, and Jesus warns against the biggest obstacle to this kind of loving community who are marked by love the, and, and by service. He says the number one, there's, this is the thing you've got to know. If you don't get this right, everyone will miss everything we're supposed to be about. He says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Here, Doug maybe mentioned this last, last week. Now, judging, this, this notion of judgmentalism, this outward-looking, those-people-over-there kind of thinking about those people, that kind of thing, it's, I would say it's probably in the top three of the sins that are talked about in the New Testament. Jesus and, and the rest of the people who are writing, the, the, Paul and the others, are writing about this stuff. It's like in the top three of things you just don't do. That, doesn't, that we just, as Christians, we're just not about that. And you have to wonder, of all of the things that Christians are known for rallying against, marching on why has there never been a global movement like of anti-judgmentalism people walking the streets holding signs no more judgmentalism i mean there's just of all the i mean you think that christians 
fully embracing this idea would somehow form massive armies of people who are just rallying against judgmentalism. But that's not what we're known for, is it? Jesus' ministry could never have been successful if what he was known for was a judgmentalism. People who were notorious sinners and tax collectors would never have hung around him if what he was known for was being this judge with judgmental properties. He's known for a lot of different things. That never would have worked, and his followers could never have had the success they had. Only, let's keep reading. Verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You have this famous analogy of the log and the speck, or the, you know, the, this, this sort of idea of someone else has a speck. We so notice someone else's speck in their own eye. Now, here's what this is typically translated as. People miss this all the time. We typically hear this as the, the speck in someone else's eye is totally insignificant. It doesn't matter. But that's not true. Have you ever seen somebody get like a little speck of sawdust or anything in their eye? They don't say, I got something in my eye. It's a little piece of sawdust. I'm good. Just wanted you to know about it. I just, it's in my eye. They're like, I mean, there's like the, ah, oh, oh, ah. Oh. And if you get in both eyes, you just go, you're like a crazy person. You knock over things, you scream and yell. Having both eyes out creates total panic. I remember I was putting eye drops in, as a, as, like I think I was in high school, and there was like, I had some kind of eye infection, and they were like, hey, put an eye drop in, and then, but they said, don't put it in both eyes at the same time, because people are prone to panic. And I was like, Pfft. and I remember, I was like, oh, oh, what is, ah, oh, there's pain in both my eyes, what is happening? Now, people who have specks in their eyes, it isn't that that thing is just sort of okay, or normal, or everything's cool. What's being highlighted here is, the, the insistence on looking at somebody else's issue without seeing our own, that is bigger. Because look what it says. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from this other person. Which means, there's actually, get ready for it, there's actually a moment of judgment, even in this, after it says, don't judge. You see, what happens to us as people who are sometimes credited with being judgmental, is that we have our own sense of fear about what's actually in our own lives, our own, our own insecurity, our own sense of inferiority. So the way that we tend to deal with it, rather than actually going through the hard work of removing stuff in our lives, is powering up, giving a sense of our own superiority, and finding fault in other people. And Jesus is warning, let's not be those kind of people. Because what happens when we do that is we elevate the stereotype about a person, and we make them only about their sin as opposed to about their, their personhood. We only see them for what they're doing wrong, the speck in their eye. That's not what we're about. If you were to ask people who were curious about Jesus, if you were to ask me, what are some of the negative stereotypes about Christians? Guaranteed, within the first three answers you'd get, judgmental. Now what has marked the community, and if you, I should just say this, if you have, if you're like new with our community, you're new to Marriage Mission Viejo, new to church, period, let me just tell you, if you've ever experienced that as your reaction to who, you know, people who follow Jesus are all about, let me just say that's on us and shame on us. That's, that's on us because that's not how we're supposed to be marked. When we find people only in seeing in their, the, just their sin, we minimize their, their, literally minimize their humanity. We minimize their personhood. It's when we see people, and maybe, maybe, maybe this is just me, you see people and we respond like this. We say things like, Oh, that guy. He's a loser. That, that guy, deadbeat. She's, 
She's an addict. He's a drunk. She's a slut. We see people, their whole identity is only as their sin. That's when we got issues with the log in our own eye. Jesus says, that can't be what we're about. The followers of Jesus understand and are still growing in this understanding that what we're about is that every single person on the planet is created in God's image and is deserving of love. Every single person on the planet. There has to be another way, another message that has to be sort of louder than the one that we've already sort of been painting as a church in so many ways. Now I'm going to give you an example of what what may seem like a giant contradiction to what I just said, and that's on purpose, from the Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and he's... um, He's writing a letter because the, the church is sort of forming up there, but Corinth is a city that's got like a reputation that's a little like worse than Vegas. It's sort of like, you know, there's, there's, it's like Vegas times 100. It's a, it's a seaport, um, and it's just kind of a little, little narrow little outstretch of Greece. And, and there's like, um, now there's a canal running all the way through. You can, they drive ships through it because it's, you know, it's this tiny little stretch of, of land. But there's, it's a seaport. Anytime in an ancient, you know, like world, there, when there's a seaport, it's a wild town. Just, just, that's just how it is. The sailors come in and they kind of go crazy. And uh, in fact, at the, when people would worship in Corinth, there is a temple and the temple priestess would come out. She'd say, I'm so glad you're here, sailors and everybody. Let's all worship together. And you pay the temple priestess and then you would have sex with her and that would be the wonderful worship service. It's a very popular worship service at the time. Uh, now, this is it's this crazy town where all kinds of stuff goes. And there's an early church. There's a church that's forming there. And you have to know about the early church, too. It's not like this. I mean, it's, they probably didn't have five walls in their room. But uh, there's, it's an early church community. Is, I mean, like a giant church would be 50 people. Like, that would be enormous. And that'd be, so you have to imagine, this is basically a house church. It's probably the size of like a rooted group or a life group, for those of you guys who are, who are there. You know, it's a small little community of people. So when Paul's talking here, he's talking to a small group of people who have gathered in Jesus' name. They can't be a huge church because it's illegal in most cases. They're gonna, they're, they'll, be, they'll, be, you know, they'll be thrown in jail for being Christians. The church also is this. The first four chapters of this letter, the first Corinthians, is, uh, it's, it's like basically about the divisiveness in the church. People are choosing different leaders, you know, trying to figure out where we're going to go. And Paul's writing like, no, 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 let's all be, we're, we all belong to each other. Remember our identity here. We're a loving community. That's what we're about. And he's trying to get everybody back together. And then in chapter 5, you, you come across this really bizarre scenario. So check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Now let me tell you real quick. The, the, the word actually, um, that, that's like, that's there to show the emphasis on Paul's like, Holy smokes, this is actually reported. One translation has the word commonly. It like, this is, this is what's going on here. We, like, we can't have this. And then he says, it's a kind of immorality that even the people who live in this city of Corinth are like, whoa. Remember, Corinth is Vegas times 100. So people living there aren't like strict, prudish kind of people. And, you know, it's like everything goes there. And they're like, oh, look at these Christians. They're going crazy. With me? So this is what Paul's saying. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, this is, some of you are like, that, why didn't he just say his mother? Is that, that that's a weird. Now, here's what this means. It's probably a stepmother scenario. Stepson, stepmother scenario. And the verb tense is that it's ongoing. It's not like one time, they just had this bizarre, crazy thing. It was like this ongoing scenario. 
And then it says this, verse 2, and you, meaning you plural, the people who belong to this church community are proud of it. Like, look how much freedom we have. This is the best. We got guys sleeping with their stepmoms. Woo! Yay, Jesus. And the outsiders are going, what in the world are you guys doing over there? People are experiencing all kinds of freedom from all restriction. And Paul, which the next chapter, he then writes these famous words. Hey, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. You guys can do whatever you want. You have freedom to do whatever you want, but not everything's good. So do you really want to be mastered by any of these things? So then he says, there's this, there's this predatory and unsafe sexual greed that's within this community, and it's not okay. So he keeps writing, verse 2. This is where it gets a little crazy. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present and I'm with you in spirit, remember he's writing a letter, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already, wait for it, passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whoa. Okay, let me just give you a little bit of sense of this. Paul says, this is a person that we have to get out of this community because he's, he's got something going on here that he, you guys are all proud of and he seems to be okay with. And, and that there's this sense about when someone is undermining the community of love, that's just not what we're about. We can't be about that with everybody's wondering, are we going to have, is our marriage in jeopardy because someone else is going to try and, is that what we're about? Is this what's going on here? He says, it's just not okay. Now, we get a little uptight about this. Like, wow, really? Should Paul just be judged? Didn't you just say, do not judge? But Paul's saying, I've passed judgment myself on this person. You know, we live, it's not that, like, for instance, you have a house and it has rules. If you have children, you have rules in your house. None of us who have kids have ever said, because we're loving parents, none of us have ever said, you know, I just, my kids, um, they fight and they punch each other, and we just, I don't want to judge them. So I just, I saw you punch your sister, and I just, I'm not judging here. That's an unloving parent, you know? I, I saw you just kick over that other kid's bike at school, and I don't want to judge. <laughs> like, that's an unloving parent. When I was a little, I was 10 years old, and in my house, we had this sort of long hallway between the front door and this other, this other wall in our house. And I was, I was kicking a soccer ball back and forth between the two, like, so against the door, and then I would turn the soccer ball and kick it against this, this desk. And I, would just, I was doing that all day, like, all the time. And one time, I got a little more confidence, started increasing the speed of the soccer ball, and uh, the ball bounces back to me, it jumps up onto my foot, and I kick it, and it goes up into the, like, the glass panels over the desk. And just shatters them, boom, all over the, you know, everything, glass everywhere. And I was just like, oh, no. You know, like totally had that everything, uh, the, just the blood ran out of my face. I was just like, I'm going to faint. I go to my bedroom and I find my little piggy bank thing. I open it up and count all the money I got in there. And I call my mom. Mom, because it's single mom. I was home by myself. Mom, I just want to let you know, I put all my money on your bed. It's $47.36. And I broke the glass on the desk. And I'm so sorry. And, you know, and she's like, she's like, she doesn't, she doesn't, do, what I needed was, you know, I'm so angry with you, I'll, you know, whatever, but what I got was the worst. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Oh, man. <laughs> now, I didn't then say to my mom, I didn't then just say, you know, like, when she got home and she, we're talking about it, it wasn't like, mom, why do you judge me? Why are you judging this behavior? 
Why do you have to judge me? Like, you're so harsh. I mean, it was like, I knew it. She knew it. In order for us to have a stable home, we can't have the Marsha Brady, no balls in the house kind of scenario. Everybody has to know we can't be kicking soccer balls. Now. That's just how a regular family has to survive. We believe that there are some rules that ought to govern a, a community of love. And Paul's saying, this kind of stuff is destructive behavior, and we can't have it in our community. And then he says this really weird thing in verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Basically, all this is meaning is this. Look, this guy wants to engage in this kind of behavior that we're not really, we don't really do here. So just let him hit rock bottom, is all it's basically saying. Let him just go crazy somewhere else. Hey, if this is what you want to be about, buddy... Just go and do it, but don't, you can't be part of us. And when you're ready, when you finally hit rock bottom, come back. Just hand, just, you clearly don't, aren't attached to Jesus or to our community. You're attached to something else. So just go ahead. In other words, we want to usher you into this. You hitting rock bottom may be the best way to love you in this scenario. Now remember, this is an insider in the church. Someone who belongs to the people in a small group community. It's not like one of a couple thousand people. It's one of maybe 50 people. At most. And this is a behavior they say, this isn't really helping the way we want to do this stuff. So we got to let them go. Now, I've heard of, there are some churches where when people are caught in some sort of, you know, sin, they're paraded in front of everybody else and then undressed in front of everybody and then everybody gets to kind of shout at them and they, they tell them, you can't leave, you have to stay here among us, which is not healthy. But this is actually saying, look, we're about this. And we need, we need you to know this is what we're about. We can't have this. If you want to do that, we release you to go do that. But you can't be part of us and do that at the same time. Now, verse 9, skipping down. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Let me stop right there, too. There's, there's four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two of them. The other ones were lost. I, I didn't lose them. I mean... It's not my fault, it's just in case you're wondering. Like, I'm not keeping him secret or whatever, but there's, there's, there's only two letters. And Paul's mentioning another letter that he wrote here. And he said, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. What's being said here is, I'm not asking, this is, now this is shocking to a lot of you. You grew up hearing your wise parents say, don't hang around with those people that are like that. And Paul's saying, I'm not asking you to do that. He's saying, I can't ask you to, to you live in Corinth. How can I ask, ask you to not be around those people that are behaving like people who live in the world? The only way I could do that is to have you move to another planet. Because we live in the world. I mean, even looking on your outline, I just noted a few things. Matthew 9, sinners ate with Jesus and his disciples. Luke 15, Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Luke 19, Jesus was the guest of a sinner. I mean, Jesus' own ministry and his disciples was about was being with people who were behaving like people who live in the world. And Paul says, hey, I'm not asking you to get away from those kind of people. Verse 11. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Meaning that the insider, this person who is damaging to the community, this loving community of genuine love, if there's a person who's claiming to be us but is living like this, we have to deal honestly with them and release them to whatever they want to do. But they can't be part of us while they're doing it. 
Verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Read that again. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Take seriously the people that are on the inside. But what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Now, there's a couple different ways this sort of works. On the one hand, some of us in the church say we should never, ever confront anybody's sin issue ever in their life. We should just let them do this stuff. Kicking soccer balls in the house. And others of us say, I am just chomping at the bit to be able to out people for their sin. I just am so excited to be able to find people and bring them up and humiliate them and let them know about like Neither one of those things is actually acting in a community of love. Remember that we started out, the first part of the message said, what would mark the community of believers, first and foremost, among everything else, above everything else, wasn't that we all agreed on a set of theological propositions, though that's there. What would mark the community of people who belong to Jesus is love. When we're talking about dealing with stuff like this, it always has to be under the umbrella of love, or else it never works. The core identity of who we are is love. And we want to be people who reclaim this embedded group identity, this dyadic personality with Jesus. People would recognize and see us and know us as people who love. Let me give you a couple ways to think about this. It's on your outline. But it's always appropriate to love another person. Always appropriate to love them. No matter what. Secondly, it's never appropriate to condemn another person. And third, sometimes... It's appropriate to confront them. Always appropriate to love, never appropriate to condemn, and sometimes it's appropriate to confront a person. Let me give you a sense of just, so how do you know when to confront a person? Let me just give you a couple parameters. And trust me, this is part of the stuff where it's like, this is all we get. You're not giving us any more clarity. We don't have enough time. But here's just one of the things. Are you willing, if you're going to confront someone, are you willing to share in their pain? Remember that the, the, the issue in, this, in the first Corinthian church is that there's this person who's acting out, and Paul says, you should be mourning instead of being proud about it. Are you willing to mourn with a person who's confronted with, this, with something in their life, to recognize their own issue, to recognize their own pain, to share in it as your own, as a marker of your love? Are you in a relationship with that person, a friendship? Have you been invited into it? That they've said, why don't, you know what? We have, we're a part of this relationship community. We know each other. Let's deal with this together. Has there been a, that kind of scenario? Are you willing to play a part in the righting of the wrong? Are you willing to be a part of this thing? In other words, if you recognize that someone else has something going on in their life, first and foremost, are you willing to recognize this also might be in my own life. I got a plank in my eye as well. Second, first, first of all. And secondly, are you willing are you willing to do something with it? In other words, if you hold on to it, you acknowledge a judgment in someone else's life or something that you go, this isn't, okay, this isn't working out, in a response of love, if you're not willing to do anything about it, you're just holding on to it, slowly this, this need for confrontation becomes just a bland judgment. And usually the way judgment sort of begins to sort of leak out is through our mouth. Then it becomes another sin. If you're not willing to do anything about it, you're not in a relationship with the person, you're not willing to share in their pain, then you've got to let it go. You've just chosen to make it not your issue. 
You see, in this room, there are people who have been damaged by judgment that have been called only the nature of their sin and never actually been seen as a human being in some of those cases. Some of us have been the contributors to the way that they feel about that. We've been judges from a distance, never willing to enter into the pain or the sorrow or the mourning with those people. And on both ends of the spectrum, we create a divisive community. And this is a family of people who are known by love. So we have to figure out, how are we going to live like people who follow Jesus? Who take seriously what goes on inside our community? And are known by something other than our judgmentalism for people outside of it? Would you close your eyes for a minute? Let's just, just for a second, then we'll pray. Close your eyes. Some of you, like I said, are people who have walked with and have known only judgment in the most painful way in your life. Some of you have heard only judgment from people who were supposed to love you deeply, like your parents, family. Some of you need to be released from that. Would you bring that before God now? Others of you have created a reputation for yourself as one who defends and recognizes the sin in other people, defends their own faith by recognizing the sin in other people, but is unwilling to be a part of the mourning and the sorrow and the pain of those people's lives. Would you bring that before God now, confessing it? Father, we have so many questions about what it means to be someone who is sincere in following you, who holds the tension of not being judgmental but using wisdom in maintaining a unity of family and community. Father, we so desperately want our reputation and our identity to be known as people who belong to you, marked by love and by service. God, we confess that we don't get that right all the time. And we thank you for your great, incomparable mercy and grace for us. God, will we do away with the pride that prevents us from being people who walk honestly and genuinely with each other? God, would you build into us a community of deep and rich family? Lord, as we sing and respond to you, would you hear our words as a family of love? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.